District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. If you're looking for an update on firearms legislation, trends, and much more, we are joined by special guests of the program, Stephen Gutowski of The Reload and Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. We talk about some pending legislation, we talk about social media and Second Amendment issues, we talk about the pending Supreme Court case and how that will be decided, what potentially will come out of that, constitutional carry, and so much more. Do not miss my interview with Mark and Stephen out today. Take a gander and let us know what you think. Hello, listeners. We are rejoined by Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation and Stephen Gutowski of The Reload to talk about what is trending in firearms and the Second Amendment. Gentlemen, thank you so much for returning to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's, uh, yeah. it's talking again. I mean, and it's always great to spend some time with Stephen. <laughs> yes, it's always great to spend time with you, Gabby. And Mark, it's it's also nice to, to uh, be here with you, too. It's like a converging of friends, even though virtually we could have done this in person, but I'm really busy these next few weeks, but we'll get to do something in person soon. But I wanted to have you guys on, obviously, to talk about a lot of things that are happening. There's a lot of excitement over maybe social media change. There's a lot of policy kind of going unnoticed, a lot of things happening in the ATF. So I want to break all these down with you both. But first, let's start with social media, perhaps with the news of Elon Musk acquiring likely Twitter. I think a lot of people, even those in the Second Amendment space, are kind of optimistic that sharing information, sharing content, not so much gun sales, but sharing Second Amendment related content may be more welcomed and received on such a platform. So let's start there. And I want to get your thoughts on that topic first. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I mean, Twitter has been at the in the background of most of the moderation wars in social media when it comes to guns. Uh, although obviously I, I your listeners might know that I recently had a run in with Twitter uh, for the reload where they um, put an unsafe warning on on all links to our site uh, and it was and then removed it shortly afterwards and you know it was on there for a couple hours but uh, never really gave any indication as to why it was put up or why it was removed uh, which is a very common problem I find with the big social media sites you know the, the, sometimes you'll get, uh, you know, the, the very well-known incidents of censorship or moderation or whatever you want to call it, uh, where they come out and explain themselves like the Hunter Biden laptop story that uh, still is getting quite a lot of um, criticism from, you know, people who are concerned about Twitter's moderation policies. But a lot, most of the time, you're really getting no explanation at all for the things that they do outside of maybe a generic uh, message that they send you. Uh, and, and in my case, with the unsafe warning, the messages that they had on their, you know, the support sites were very generic and, and didn't really give you any indication as to why it was happening. They gave you a bunch of different reasons as to why it could have happened. Uh, and then never, you know, one of them was people could have reported the, you know, the tweets that contain links to my site. Um, it could have been some sort of filter that I got caught up in. It's really still not clear. Uh, you know, we went through and, and <laughs> tried to do everything we could to uh, 
look through the site to figure out if any issues and clean up anything that um, you know might might have caused concern, but it's still just not clear as to why it happened. And um, and I think that's common. But the bigger fights in the gun world in terms of social media moderation or censorship have have really been on Facebook and YouTube and and, um, and Instagram and even Amazon to some degree. And those have really not migrated as much to Twitter because I think one, Twitter is not used as often by sort of gun tuber types, you know, entertainment celebrities. Uh, they don't really do a lot on Twitter. It's not really built for that kind of content really. You know, that's usually you get Instagram and YouTube is where you see a lot of those popular, uh, you know, gun creators, I guess you'd call them. And then businesses tend to use Instagram and Facebook more. And the issues that you run in there are like trying to block people from advertising gun sales on, on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and then on YouTube, you run into a lot of content moderation that's sort of vague and, and capricious or, you know, arbitrary when it comes to what you can actually make videos about and post. Whereas Twitter hasn't really uh, gotten into that kind of moderation, I think mainly because there just isn't that much supply of that kind of content on the platform. Um, the, the biggest thing I think has been sharing of uh, 3D gun files. You know, you had a couple of years back Facebook went as far as to completely block the uh, link to uh, a gun rights group's website, uh, I think it was uh, Code is Freedom, it was, uh, the Firearms Policy Coalition had a website where they had a repository of these 3D uh, gun files and Twitter, Facebook not only wouldn't uh, allow you to you know, promote this, they wouldn't even let you post the link and Amazon took them off their servers, uh, you know, their, their hosting, web hosting servers. And, uh, and I believe Twitter was also involved in, you know, minimizing sharing of those links. So uh, you could see certainly a change with the approach there. Uh, Musk hasn't talked about that much other than just saying he's um, sort of a general, generally approaches the idea as of being as welcoming to all sorts of, sorts of non-illegal speech as possible, which obviously sharing 3D gun files is not illegal in most jurisdictions, although I guess some of that is still in the courts right now in places like New Jersey. But, you know, perhaps there's a change there. How are industry players responding to, let's say, the acquiring of Twitter, Mark? Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, kind of what Stephen was talking about is, is that there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about Twitter, that really the industry has been affected more to the, to the discriminatory policies by Facebook and, and Facebook-owned properties, Google-owned properties, uh, you know, being YouTube, being, you know, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, so they've had, they've had serious issues there to the point of YouTube demonetizing content for content creators. And, and that's been uh, difficult. It's even been difficult for NSSF as, as we're trying to put out videos uh, that are demonstrating, especially to all the new gun buyers over the past couple of years, uh, what safe firearm handling practices look like, what safe firearm storage looks like. So we want to try and get those videos out or any other organization 
uh, or individual who's creating content wants to put that out and they are uh, being blocked from adding that up, from putting that out to their accounts, to, to reaching out to new uh, subscribers, that becomes, uh, it becomes difficult. And it also becomes a bit of a safety issue that these, these entities that uh, are trying to moderate content in the name of public safety are actually contributing to unsafe handling of firearms when we're trying to show people who are new to firearm ownership what it should look like. Um, so, so it is, it is frustrating when we see this. As far as it comes to Twitter, you know, again, I think for the fact that Twitter is not a, a site that is, you know, really built toward the visual aspects of, of what it takes to show people what a firearm does, how it works, how it operates, especially when it comes to, to new uh, firearms that are being introduced to market. Uh, you know, some of the other channels that are out there, I think, are, are more conducive to that. So, uh, it, but overall, I mean, we've seen this issue with social media, uh, you know, moderating content. And, and, and our argument is very much the same as, as Elon Musk's argument, is that social media is the public square. And so when you have an, an entity that is uh, claiming that they have the ability to moderate your content because they are, you know, they're a private entity, yet they enjoy the protections of, uh, of press like, you know, uh, newspapers and, and magazines, then it becomes an issue when you can't express uh, your First Amendment freedoms on those uh, on those uh, on those channels. So, you know, we we have under we're under the, the assumption that, you know, these are. Uh, public squares, and, and that this is where America today is consuming their their media content. Uh, so, you know, we think that they need to be open and free of uh, of, of discriminatory practices that are, are essentially squashing your First Amendment rights to talk about your Second Amendment rights. Isn't I mean that's what it comes down to. I saw an article that Elon Musk posted to referring to a CNN article that said that certain activist groups, and I have no doubt. Entities maybe like the Brady Group, Every Town for Gun Safety, they'll pressure corporations to urge Musk to not change what is already existing policy on Twitter. So that'll be super interesting, especially as those groups start to lose fervor. And what I'm alluding to, listeners, is there's actually more and more articles. I think Mark and Stephen, you have written about the Axios piece and other different pieces that showcase that more Americans, especially those who are not your typical gun owners, your more diverse gun ownership kind of buying interests are starting to be realized and recognized in media. And like you had said, with social media, making it harder for people to safely operate firearms or find resources to learn how to safely operate firearms. I think it's going to come at a disadvantage to those new gun owners, but talk about the overall trends and whether or not you think it'll impact perhaps elections going forward, maybe even the midterms. Yeah, so let me let me take a stab at that first. Interesting. I'm I'm glad you brought up the Axios article because I spent actually quite a bit of time uh, working with Shauna Chen on that, the, the author of that article. Uh, and it was interesting because Axios is not exactly a conservative leaning uh, news center uh, news publication. They they are uh, probably left of center. They uh, they take an honest and, and and hard look at the at the reporting that they do, and they're very popular. Uh, in the DC Beltway, you know, uh, readership, uh, when it comes to policy issues that are affecting their electorate, 
So, uh, so the fact that Axios wanted to pay attention to this growth in uh, new gun owners, and especially the growth across the different, different demographics, uh, was quite interesting. And so they were asking about our surveys that we had conducted over the past couple of years about the growth of new gun owners. And we saw in 2020, they had 21 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. And our firearm retail surveys uh, told us that you know 40% of those people who were buying guns in 2020 were buying a gun for the very first time. Um, we also learned that 58% of the people buying guns were African-Americans. So there's a, I'm sorry, there's a 58% increase of African-Americans buying guns in uh, 2020, a 49% increase of Hispanic-Americans buying guns, and a 43% increase of Asian-Americans buying guns. Interestingly, of the 40% of people who were buying guns for the first time, 40% of those were women. So when we started to take a look at this, and it hasn't been just Axios, Politico has looked at this, at this figure too. Um, they're all looking at this as these are groups that are, are historically tied to a Democratic voting bloc. These are the people that Democrats need to get out to, you know, gin up the base to make sure that they're shoring up their vote. Uh, but these are also people now who didn't just go out buy a gun. They invested their hard-earned money in buying a firearm. Firearms are not exactly inexpensive. And this, is, this takes some thought. Uh, in many states, uh, it's not just as simple as going down to the state, uh, going down to your firearm uh, retail and, and passing a background check and walking out with a firearm. When you're talking about states like California, you're talking about a 10-day waiting period. You're talking about significant hurdles. Uh, you're talking about uh, in Illinois, you have to have a firearm owner identification card that you have to obtain prior to getting that. So there, there are some hurdles for people out there that are, are a little bit more difficult than, than maybe some of the states where where we find it a little bit easier to exercise your Second Amendment rights. But we saw increases across every state. You know, we talked about the 2020 numbers, but the, the 2021 numbers were, were pretty high as well. We saw 18.5 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. And our surveys in 2021 showed us that 5.4 million people purchased a firearm for the very first time. 60% of the retailers said the demographics of people coming into their stores didn't change. So, so more than half of those uh, firearm locations out there were telling us that they were still seeing increased levels of African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans. Every walk of life is coming into exercise of Second Amendment rights. So when you start to layer that over the broad scope of who today's voters are, we're finding that today's gun buyer is more representative of, of Americans across the board. They're younger, they're more urban, and more representative of women. And so we're seeing that when you start to overlay that over your voters, that now you're starting to see some of those issues are, are shifting. They're not necessarily Republican, uh, GOP, uh, conservative issues now. These are these are American issues. And if people are buying guns out of concerns of their personal safety, we, we found that in our surveys as well. So we also know that when they do surveys about what the voters are concerned about, crime is at the top of this list. So people are buying guns because they're concerned about the crime that's around them. And when they see that they're, you know, politicians are working toward you know, making it more difficult or ending their gun rights, that becomes a voting issue. So I think it, I think it'll definitely be something that will factor into the midterms and, and possibly even to 2024 as we get closer there. How about your take, Stephen? What are you hearing from people you're talking to? Yeah. Um, well, first off, I would I, I'm would commend Axios on on uh, writing this story. Uh, you know, uh, what, uh, two years after, I guess I, I first started covering the same exact story. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it, it is nice to see other outlets acknowledge this shift because I think it is, 
extremely important in the conversation about the future of gun politics in the United States. I think this growth in minority gun ownership, the growth in uh, female gun ownership over the last decade, but really the last two years in particular, is one of the stories that's most undercovered in, in our media and one of the stories that's going to have the biggest long-term effects on gun politics throughout the country, not just at the national level, but also at the state and local level. And, you know, I think that it's likely to have uh, maybe a different impact than a lot of traditional gun owners might expect, which, I mean, you've kind of already seen this because you had a lot of talk in 2020 about how all these new gun owners were that meant that uh, you know Donald Trump was going to win re-election because they were all immediately going to turn into party line Republican voters, and of course that did not happen. And I don't think that's the most likely outcome of this, you know, politically of this new batch of of governors that we've seen over the last couple of years. I think more likely, you know, given that they come from. Uh, traditionally more um, Democrat-leaning demographics, it's not, it's not necessarily the case that they're going to become, you know, dyed-in-the-wool conservatives overnight just because they bought a gun. They, but what is more likely to happen is that they will become more amenable to uh, looser gun laws or, uh, you know, protecting gun rights through legislation than they were before. And over time, you probably see more and more of them uh, transition uh, into that, uh, that category of voter who, who cares uh, about, uh, you know, gun rights when they're going to the polls. And you've already seen some evidence of this. Uh, there was a University of Chicago poll uh, survey that came out recently, which indicated that people who bought guns during the pandemic, you know, over the last two years, were actually, in some cases, um, more favorable towards loosening uh, gun restrictions than people who bought guns before that period. Uh, you know, specifically with things like waiting periods, which makes sense, right? If you think about it, because uh, as Mark was discussing there a bit, you know, a lot of these people who bought guns for the first time are in states where they have, you know, waiting periods like California, right? Um, and I, I remember doing a story on one of these uh, new gun owners out in California who had went to buy his gun at the, the, you know, height of the panic over the coronavirus, uh, you know, right, the shutdowns were starting, the, we had, you know, toilet paper shortages, food shortages at some places, soap shortages, you know, I'm sure we all remember what 2020 was like, you know, March and April, but he went to buy a gun for the first time and he went to his store, did the background check, you know, passed, he, he worked in tech, you know, um, his uh, wife and child are, are, you know, of Asian descent. And so they had experienced some racist harassment. And that was part of the reason he wanted to, uh, to buy a gun. And the store was closed, got shut down and then didn't reopen. So, uh, he went to try and get his gun from a different store, but by that time, the 30-day window had uh, closed in terms of you know how long your your background check is good for because he 
you know, because he, the, that waiting period, he had to wait to go back and the store had closed in the time between he went to buy it and when he would have been eligible to go back and actually pick up the gun. And, uh, you know, so it ended up taking him, he had to go to another store in a different county and, and buy a gun and it took him like two months, you know, he had to go through the waiting process again. And, and so you, you can kind of see, at least on an anecdotal level, how it might be that that new gun owners uh, from the pandemic period might be more resistant to some of these gun restrictions that they actually had to personally interact with in a time of, uh, you know, chaos where they were probably feeling a very urgent need to buy a gun, but then weren't able to because of the sort of restrictions that exist in in some of these states. And, and you can start to understand why that polling shows uh, even more support for repealing those kinds of restrictions among new gun owners than previous gun owners. Relating to the surge in gun ownership, especially among a more diverse subset of Americans, the New York Pistol Rifle Association case before the Supreme Court could have monumental effects in this country, overturning the last vestiges of May issue laws, which prevent you from obtaining firearms in a more feasible manner. When can we expect to hear that case ruled on? Do we expect them to rule in the favor of the Pistol Rifle Association? And what impact would it have undoing these May issue laws? Yeah, so NSSF actually filed an amicus on this case. Um, and, and just to show we're absolutely clear, uh, this addresses the uh, California, or I'm sorry, New York's uh, you know, May issue versus shall issue uh, statutes. Um, so basically, in, in New York, you have to present a good reason for you to be able to carry a firearm concealed uh, in the state. Uh, the, the New York Rifle uh, or the New York Rifle uh, Pistol Association is uh, challenging that law and saying that it, it has allowed the state to uh, deny Second Amendment rights to uh, gun owners in the state from to be able to protect themselves uh at their at their will, you know, the Second Amendment is your right, and you should be able to exercise that. So that's that's what's challenging. It won't really affect how people purchase firearms, uh, but will affect how people are able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. It could have secondary effects into when it becomes easier for you to exercise your Second Amendment rights. Uh, that you people may want to purchase firearms uh, a little more readily because now they don't see so many hurdles, so many uh, blockades to. Uh, to firearm ownership and, and to being able to use that firearm. So I want to make sure that we're absolutely clear on that. I will say this. I think it is a fool's errand for anybody to try to predict what the Supreme Court is going to do. Uh, I think there have been many times, especially those of us in, in, in the firearm community, who where we see a case that is going to be uh, you know, uh, petition to the Supreme Court, and we get very hopeful that they're going to hear it. You know, it was just a couple of years ago that the Supreme Court uh, kicked away over uh, over ten cases that had been waiting for years to be heard, and they denied them all. Uh, denied them all. Uh, you know, their petitions. So, um, very frustrating for for those of us in the firearm community. You know, we saw many of those cases that we thought were worth hearing. Uh, and and obviously some of the justices disagreed with that as well. We've seen that Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh have all come out on the record and said that uh, they believe that the Second Amendment is being treated as a second class right uh, by the lower courts and that they're not applying um, all the uh, precedents of Heller as they should be. 
So uh, we're, we're hopeful this is the first, you know, really big firearm case that we've seen in nearly 10 years that uh, that this is going to go the way we, we think it will. Now, if we start to look at the questions that were asked among the justices, uh, the questions that were posed back to lawyers on both sides, it seemed that there was an appetite to strike some kind of bargain to, to at least see if there was a way that they could uh, arrive at some sort of middle ground. Now, where it ends up in the at the end, again, I, I always caution people to try not to predict what the Supreme Court is going to do. But we should see a decision on this uh, before the end of the summer. Uh, all the, they've heard the last case for this session. Uh, and so they're all finishing up writing the opinions. Uh, and I think everyone, after seeing what's happened here recently with the leaked report that came out uh, regarding abortion, uh, that they're they're now kind of getting a little bit of insight into how the Supreme Court works. After they hear these cases, they'll all kind of come together at a conference. They will take their votes. Uh, the, the Chief Justice will assign writing a majority and minority opinions. Uh, those drafts will be will be drafted up, and then they'll be circulated around. And at which time, as people are finding out now, many times justices will. Uh, maybe shift their opinions, or maybe they will not concur with the entire opinion, and they want to write their own uh, concurring or dissenting opinion to go along with it uh, to make sure their voice is heard in that in that uh, that you know uh, majority or minority opinion. So uh, you know we we expect that we should hear from this uh, this subject from the court before the summer is out, and you know the new session begins in the fall when they start hearing uh, new arguments. Uh, and, and, and we still have other cases that we're, we're hoping that the court picks up. We, we The magazine ban case that's out of California, uh, challenging California's ban on uh, standard capacity magazines, uh, Duncan v. Bonta. We think that that has a lot of credibility and we think it is worth hearing at the court. And we also see that there's other cases that are out there. You see uh, Bianchi v. Frosch uh, is, is being uh, petitioned uh, out of Maryland, uh, again, trying to challenge Maryland's uh, ban on, on modern sporting rifles or AR-15. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this a case for New York because it, it may inform us where the, the court may want to hear or may not want to hear, uh, you know, future petitions when it comes to uh, to hardware, especially uh, the firearm industry. Can you own a certain type of firearm? Can you own a certain type of magazine? You know, is it a, is it within the state's purview to to uh, limit your ability to to defend yourself by limiting uh, magazine capacity? And then we, we are very interested to see that the court uh, may or may not take this issue. Stephen, what are your thoughts on the case? Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot of reason for gun rights advocates to be optimistic about this case and, and the outcome of it uh, at this point, especially, honestly, uh, I think the, the leaking of the abortion case draft might even give you a little bit more confidence in, in the outcome of this case being positive for uh, gun rights advocates. Uh, I'm going to write about this over at the Reload soon, actually. But frankly, uh, if you look at the way that that draft opinion is written, it settles a lot on the idea of uh, history and tradition uh, being you know, vital in deciding what, uh, you know, text history and tradition really being vital to deciding what gets constitutional protections and what doesn't. Um, and, and that's obviously something that gun rights advocates have been pushing that point of view uh, since uh, 
Heller was decided really since Heller and McDonald uh, as the way that the court ought to look at gun cases as well. And, and these restrictions that uh, have been placed on gun ownership or in the New York case, gun carry uh, really later on in, uh, you know, American history, you know, really the, the argument is that a lot of these, these restrictive laws are 20th century inventions that didn't exist uh, at the time of the founding, at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment, and that they are uh, infringing on, uh, you know, this core right that is explicitly protect protected in the text, and also how that was reflected in the history and tradition of the United States. And so, uh, you know, th there is some reason to even take from this leaked draft as you know, inspiration for what might come in the brewing case. Uh, it's obviously not a slam dunk thing. And, and certainly Mark's correct in the sense that you, you don't, you can't really know what the Supreme, Supreme Court is going to do until they actually do it. Um, you know, oral arguments can tell you, you know, they might give you some insight, but it's not necessarily the case that it's going to help you discern exactly how the court comes out on a question. But then uh, certainly, you know, oral arguments in Bruin, you know, they give the impression that the court is going to strike down New York's May issue law as being unconstitutional, um, you know, because the, the good reason clause in, in New York's concealed carry law is too arbitrary and, uh, you know, it gives too much subjective power to government officials to restrict somebody's constitutionally guaranteed right. Uh, you know, that's, of course, the question at, at hand in, in this case is like, does the law do that? And I think that oral arguments, you saw a lot of the justices ask questions in line with the, the idea that it does, and then ask questions about not only, you know, how far they ought to go down that road in the, in the sense of, you know, is, is permitting at all a, an infringement on the Second Amendment, right? I mean, certainly you've seen a lot of people at the state level argue that, and then that's why they call permitless carry constitutional carry. The argument is that you don't, you know, the, the permit is not uh, necessary or appropriate given the Second Amendment. And so, you know, the court has, uh, the court was asking about the, that concept. And I think they mainly seem to, retreat to, uh, you know, that May issue permitting is, is unconstitutional because it's too subjective, um, you know, and to, gives too much power to the government officials, whereas shall issue permitting where they don't have that same sort of discretion. And it's just based off of whether or not you complete the training and, and pass the background check uh, in, you know, the most of the shall issue states, uh, you know, that seem to be less concerned about that kind of permitting. I mean, Roberts had a series of questions where he, he sort of got at the core of that idea. But, um, you know, that none of that is guarantee that they're going to come out that way. I just think there's certainly signs, you know, taking all that together, taking with the basic logic in this uh, abortion draft, it's good news, it's good indicators for gun rights advocates that that likely New York's law 
will be struck down and that'll impact the other seven remaining states that still have that type of regulation on gun carry. And, but, you know, which sounds like not a lot of states, right? But they're some of the biggest states, you know, California, Maryland, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, they, they all have May issue laws. And so about 25% of the population lives under May issue right now, which which will, I think, as Mark sort of alluded to, probably create um, further incentive for people to buy guns um, because it'll be easier for them to actually carry guns around. I mean, if you, if you're, if you, you know, anyone who carries knows that, uh, you know, you probably have guns that you like for, you know, they're like shoes, right? You have them for all different purposes. Um, you know, you might have your range guns, like my six hour P320 X5 is, is one of my favorite range guns, but that's a full size gun. It holds 21 rounds. It's very big. It's got, I think a five inch barrel. It's not something that I would conceal carry with. So I have a, you know, a Springfield XDS, or I have a, a SIG P365 that I carry. Uh, and I have a, you know, a 1911, a Remington R1 Enhanced that I, that's another range gun. I don't carry that. And so you'll, you'll probably see people who now will be more uh, able to actually carry their guns around legally will probably buy guns for that purpose. So I think it will have a, an economic impact in that sense as well for the industry. You alluded to constitutional carry. That's a lightning rod topic, especially among gun control advocates. And there's been a lot of a fear, a lot of fear assigned to the policy. So 25 states now, as of this recording, have constitutional carry, permitless carry laws in effect, or that'll go into effect very soon. Could you deconstruct what exactly that entails and whether or not criticism from gun control advocates about it leading to more crime is accurate. Yeah, I think um, what's fascinating about constitutional carry is how quickly it swept the country. You know, it wasn't that long ago that it was only two states had constitutional carry. It was the, I think Arizona was the third one in 2010, if I'm remembering correctly. You know, obviously Vermont started the whole thing back at the founding they, they've always been constitutional case. Another term for it was Vermont carry, right? Um, and, and so you've just seen this incredible sweep, and especially over the last you know couple of years here, uh, you've seen you know, five states a year have been adopting this policy. And uh, yeah, you get a lot of pushback from gun control advocates who um, are obviously unhappy with it. There's sort of uh, what they call it, uh, guns everywhere. Uh, you know, and then this idea that, any, you know, anyone can now legally carry a hidden firearm on their person in public, right? And, um, you know, the, there is some argument, I think Stacey Abrams, uh, the candidate for governor in Georgia from the Democratic side, has claimed that it'll make uh, it easier for criminals to carry guns. Uh, you know, obviously that's, uh, I don't think that's factually accurate. You know, I, I'm not... There isn't really a lot of explanation given for how that's supposed to be the case, because certainly constitutional carry makes it so that only people who can legally own guns can legally carry them without a permit, you know, concealed. And so it doesn't have any effect on criminals at all, because they're already prohibited from even possessing a gun in the first place, even holding one. Uh, so you know, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything legally for them. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, I don't really 
by the argument that it, it makes it easier for criminals to do anything, frankly, but, um, you know, maybe there's less of a pretext to stop somebody, I guess, uh, because they don't, they're carrying without a permit uh, while not committing any other crimes. But of course, that one of the issues there is that that, that particular charge is often inequitably enforced, right? Again, it's often used against young black men. Uh, you saw this in, in uh, Detroit public defenders came out and, and said that, uh, you know, 97% of carrying without a permit charges that don't have any other charges attached to them. So they, you know, they're not, there's no evidence that they've done anything else besides carry a gun without a permit. Um, you know, the, that the 97% of those charges were against black men in Detroit, you know, so there's obviously, uh, you know, a racial component to this. Um, that's kind of interesting because it's sort of uh, mixes up a lot of uh, what, you know, the normal, balance on those sorts of complaints normally they're they're coming from uh you know the left on on racial uh, inequity in, in criminal justice but in this in this instance it's you know coming from from more often from the right and gun rights advocates but um yeah i you know i i do wonder how much more runway they, there is for constitutional carry in uh, on, at the state level in the United States, because you've reached a point now where you're at almost all of the triple red states, you know, so states where the Republicans control the legislature and the governor uh, house, you know, they, they're almost all of those have constitutional carry now. And there hasn't been as much, there hasn't been any really momentum to pass the these policies in purple states and certainly not in blue states. Blue states obviously have gone the exact opposite direction and passed uh, their main policy has been ghost gun bans over the last, you know, couple of years. But, but um, you know, at some point you probably reach. Uh, it looks like uh, the the cap for how many of these states you're going to get to constitutional carry. But that could be wrong. You know, I mean, you saw that with shall issue, that was most states didn't allow any sort of um, concealed carry. You know, if you go back 20, 30 years. Uh, and then Florida changed that. And it's possible that if there continues to not be a significant um, crime increase that's directly attributed to this policy change, that it could spread further. Uh, certainly Pennsylvania has tried to pass it. Uh, their legislature, their Republican legislature passed it. Um, obviously, it was vetoed by the Democratic governor, and so it didn't make it into law. But you know, maybe in the future that'll the politics will change even further. Gabriel, I, I kind of agree with with what uh, you know Stephen's been saying. There's been a lot of uh, hysterics on the other side of this issue talking about uh, you know these laws uh, that will allow people to exercise their Second Amendment rights unencumbered um, would you know lead to you know the, the fabled wild wild west and blood in the streets. We heard that argument if you look back in history. Uh, about, you know, when Florida did their shall issue law, and as Stephen talked about, there was a lot of predictions that that would lead to absolute mayhem, and those just have never borne true. And if we look at the history of firearm ownership uh, and crime and the intersection of that, you know, crime was was uh, a serious issue in, in the early to mid-1990s, uh, and, and firearm ownership has done nothing but increase. And during that time, uh, crime was dropping to near historic lows. 
Uh, and it's only been over the past couple of years we saw crime tick up. When if we start to look at some of the other factors uh, that that kind of go along with this, then we we understand it's not lawful gun ownership that's driving crime. People don't go out, spend you know hundreds to maybe thousands of their own hard-earned dollars, pass background checks, endure waiting periods, have to you know go through mandated storage requirements just so they can go out and commit a crime with a gun because they've been waiting so long to do that. That's not the case. And if we look at the at the time to crime ATF trace uh, reports, that there right now is average of seven years from when a firearm is legally purchased to when it is recovered at the scene of a crime. And obviously, somewhere along that way, the firearm was misappropriated. It was either stolen or was lost, and someone got a hold of it. It's been trading hands on the black market. Uh, we, we see that the Bureau of Justice Statistics reports uh, show that upwards of 90% of the people who have committed a, a felony with a firearm admit to getting that firearm through uh, illegal means. They they obtained it on the black market, or they traded it for uh, for drugs or through gang affiliations, and uh, or they've stolen that firearm. So we know that it's just not true that lawful firearm ownership leads to increased crimes. It has never been the case. And so, again, if we look at what's happened over the past couple of years, so we've seen the defund the police movement. We've seen prosecutors moving toward progressive uh, no bail policies, putting criminals right back out on the street only to be rearrested again, to, to not to releasing criminals, uh, you know, before their their sentences have been finished, to to going light on sentencing when it comes to those issues, not enforcing the laws. I mean, if we look at what's happening with District Attorney Gascon out in, in Los Angeles, uh, you have 98% of the prosecutors that work on his team want to see him gone because he's not enforcing the law. The sheriff, Sheriff Villanueva, who's no friend of gun rights, is has publicly said that the, the district attorney Gascon has been just a plague on, on that county and Los Angeles and when it comes to enforcing the law, that he can't do anything that he needs to do and is his part as a law enforcement officer to protect the community because District Attorney Gascon is just putting criminals back onto the street. So we see that this is a repetitive issue, and that's been happening over the past couple of years. Gun ownership has been nothing but climbing since the mid-1990s. And so when we see lawful gun ownership has been you know, climbing while crime went down, and then we see the intersection of these policies being introduced over the past couple of years, and now we see crime spiking. Well, we know it's not the lawful gun owner who's causing this crime. We know that it's, it's people out there who are not enforcing, not allowing those who want to enforce the law to enforce the law and those who are responsible for enforcing that law, whether it be uh, uh, in the courtroom or on the streets as, as law enforcement officers, they're either being barred, they're either being you know defunded and not given the resources that they need to, or they're willingly not doing it uh, by their own volition when it comes to the courtroom and, and sentencing these uh, criminals appropriately as they need to be. So, you know, this, this idea that you know, constitutional carry, permitless carry is going to lead to, you know, spike in crime. It's just not true. It's, it's been a fabled myth. Uh, it's been repeated time and again. It's nothing but trying to gin up the base to scare the public when it comes to it. But what we're seeing again is as this number of gun owners continues to climb, America's rejecting that argument. America's looking at it and saying, wait a second, I'm responsible for my personal safety, and I'm going to take that responsibility seriously. And they've been doing that by the millions over the past couple of years. I think the RAND Corporation is one really good source. I've cited it, and I know you guys have talked about the RAND Corporation, too. They actually found, and if we can apply that logic of what they found and concluded that permit holders had little or no measurable impact on the crime rates, 
I think you've applied the same findings to permitless carry too. And, and when it's polled consistently, you don't see a huge spike in crime because of permitless or permit holders. It's more so from people who commit the crimes. And I think even in one instance, I think it was either something from John Lott, I can't recall that uh, law enforcement who oppose concealed carry or even permitless carry, sometimes they're found found to be committing crimes with guns higher than people who are citizen or uh, regular civilians outside of law yeah. enforcement. So I remember seeing that, and that could be an interesting reason as to why they oppose permitless carry. Yeah, you're exactly right, Gabriel. He's the John Lott has published reports that have shown that that per, you know, permit holders for uh, you know concealed carry permit holders across the nation are actually more law abiding than law enforcement when it comes to to the statistics of it. So again, those who those who are passing the background checks. To be able to do this, those who are you know buying their guns lawfully, those who are obtaining the permits lawfully, and now those who are able to carry in those states without needing to obtain those permits, they're not the problem. They're the ones who are who are trying to protect themselves and protect the community. Let's talk about the ATF. There has been interesting reporting, especially on the part of you, Stephen. A really interesting shakeup happening. I think you had alluded to a black ATF officer who was passed on for the second time for the director role for a David Shipman-like candidate, Diedelbach. Could you explain what is happening, the controversy surrounding the Black ATF officer being passed on this, and what would the selection, both of you, uh, what would the selection of this Shipman 2.0-like candidate uh, do for the ATF? Yeah, certainly um, there's been a lot of news in the ATF just recently here with the president nominating Steve Duttelbach, who's a former U.S. attorney and also former Democratic nominee for attorney general in Ohio, uh, to be the permanent director. This is the second time he's tried to get a permanent director in there. Uh, you know, obviously, we all uh, remember David Chipman, uh, who was the former ATF agent turned gun control activist who worked for Giffords and, uh, you know, ultimately failed to get through the nomination process in, in a 50-50 Senate. Um, but now Biden's going back to that well. He's trying again with this other candidate who uh, also has publicly endorsed uh, gun control positions and been endorsed by Evertown uh, for gun safety. And uh, while that was happening, short, shortly after he nominated Dettelbach or announced his nomination, uh, he also moved to demote the current acting director. Uh, ATF's had acting directors for years now. Um, there's really only ever been one permanent director who was confirmed by the Senate since it became Senate confirmable back in 2006. Um, and, and, you know, so it's been, I believe, a decade since they've had a permanent director. And they've been using, they've been working through acting directors. And the most recent one has been Marvin Richardson, who is, uh, you know, a career ATF agent. Um, 33 years. He is African-American, uh, as, as you talked about there. And uh, in addition to passing him over for the permanent director nomination, he was also demoted to deputy acting director. And they brought in another U.S. attorney to take his place out of uh, Arizona. Uh, and this has caused something of uh, an uproar among both that black gun owners in the form of uh, the National African American Gun Association, who is uh, questioning this move and, and questioning the racial motivations involved and saying that Biden should uh, put Richardson back in 
as acting director and nominate him as permanent director, which, uh, you know, is unlikely to happen, but uh, that's what they want. And then you also saw a, a group of uh, that works with the ATF to forward the careers of uh, black ATF agents uh, come out and express their continued support for Richardson as, as the acting director. Uh, they did not specifically criticize the president uh, or, or Dettelbach for, uh, you, you know, they are, and that's perhaps because they are, you know, uh, an organization that more directly works as a partner with the ATF. And so they're probably limited a bit in what they can say. Uh, now you've also had a group like uh, Noble, which is uh, a group that represents um, black law enforcement agents uh, come out in support of Dettelbuck's nomination. Uh, Noble is also partnered with every town. So, you know, there, there's some, uh, you know, uh, work there on, on gun control activities, but they have come out in support of Dettelbuck. They haven't said anything about Richardson or th that situation, but, um, you know, you, you have seen effectively the, the White House did a, tried to counter this, this narrative about the racial issues involved in this nomination by by announcing the support of, of Noble um, uh, just recently. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this, how this unfolds in the Senate. Um, certainly Richardson had become a target of uh, the gun control groups in recent months uh, who criticized them for being too friendly towards the industry, too friendly towards uh, NSSF and, uh, you know, Mark's Mark's group, uh, that was the main problem that uh, the gun control advocates had with him, that he went to SHOT Show, which is run by NSSF, and that he, they had complained that he was taking too long to issue President Biden's ghost gun kit ban, uh, which was uh, rolled out earlier this month, or sorry, late last month, uh, April. And so that that's why likely he was demoted. Um, not, I mean, you know, it's kind of a sort of kicked in the butt on the way out because he was an acting director. He wasn't going to be in that position for forever, for very much longer, really, just a couple months probably. And so they sort of have demoted him on his way out already after passing him over twice. So it definitely feels like a bit of a punishment for Richardson for at least being perceived as too friendly towards the industry by, uh, you know, groups like, um, you know, Giffords and, and Brady and uh, Newtown Action Alliance had specifically publicly criticized. And there's a whole New York Times article by Glenn Thrush that had uh, attacked Richardson by name as somebody who was pumping the brakes on President Biden's gun control agenda. Um, and so, you know, how, how credible those complaints about Richardson were is certainly up for debate. And uh, obviously, um, the National African-American Gun Association does not agree with them uh, and doesn't feel that they're fair criticisms and they feel like Richardson should be made the permanent director. So, uh, and obviously is interested in, I'm sure it'd be interesting to hear what Mark and NSSF think of, of the whole situation too. Yeah, Mark, briefly before I want to ask you about this gun uh, marketing bill, could you just briefly in a minute or less tell everyone why the ATF should have a working relationship with industry players? Yeah, so we are, the, of course, the industry that they regulate. 
And, and the, the bottom line is that the special agents that are out there in the field who are trying to enforce the laws, put criminals in jail, have a great working relationship with your, your average retailer out there. That's where most of their tips are coming from. They're, when a retailer sees something that isn't right, they're the ones who are going to the local field agent saying, hey, this doesn't right, something doesn't look right, please look into this. And that's where they're getting their tips to make sure that people aren't trying to illegally purchase a firearm, aren't trying to steal a gun, and, and make sure that, you know, those guns aren't getting out to the street. Because of some of these policies that are being pushed by the Department of Justice through the through the White House, um, that we're, we're seeing now that that relationship is becoming um, very tense, that uh, now because of the zero tolerance policies that are being pushed down through the DOJ, uh, that many retailers are afraid to to work with ATF agents for fear of self-reporting. That now uh, a simple clerical error on an A and D book or an acquisitions dispositions book could possibly cause them to lose their license. So it's becoming a, a little bit difficult. I know that uh, I've talked with uh, members of the ATF, uh, and they've they've expressed to me privately that they are uh, very concerned about what this will lead to. Um, there's been a difference of opinion. Uh, you saw someone like David Chipman, who, let's be honest, in that New York Times article, was doing nothing but salting the earth when it came to to, to Marvin Richardson. Uh, David Chipman has an axe to grind. He obviously has an axe to the industry. We opposed him. You know, that article went forward and said that he didn't earn our nomination. It was nothing of the sort. We straight out opposed David Chipman for the job because he was a gun lobbyist. Um, but he, he salted the earth from Marvin Richardson and, and completely, um, you know, a completely unprofessional way of, of handling it. And we see that happen through the White House and they're, they're, they've unceremoniously pushed him out, you know, pushing him out the door now. Um, so uh, Marvin Richardson was widely respected, is widely respected within the fire ministry, is widely respected among the agents in the field. And we, we think that this is uh, you know, a very unfortunate and unfair way to treat someone who has a 33-year history, started as a uh, on the ground floor as a special agent in the ATF, has worked at leadership levels uh, all the way up uh, to now being the acting director, and, uh, and, and would have been a, a very good candidate for them to put forward. Uh, interestingly, the, the, the Biden administration on day one, President Biden signed an executive order to talk about uh, the ways that his administration put forth uh, avenues of racial equity within the administration. Uh, and again, as Stephen pointed out, this is not the first time. This is the second time and possibly the third time if you want to look at it, that Marvin Richardson, as an African-American law enforcement professional, has been passed over twice by two white men who are far, who, who has qualifications well head and shoulders above them. Has been passed over. They passed David Chipman, put him forward instead of Marvin. They put Mr. Dettelbach forward instead of Marvin, and now they're uh, they're demoting him and putting uh, putting uh, the uh, Mr. Gastrano. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm probably uh, missing that name up. Uh, but they're they're replacing him as the acting director uh, with, with somebody else as well. So this is it's kind of going back on the promise that we see what the administration is doing here. Um, when it goes to Mr. Dettelbach, uh, the, the administration uh, put forward this, this nomination. We are willing to listen to what Mr. Dettelbach has to say in his confirmation hearing as far as the, you know, we, NSSF has not taken a position as to where he is, uh, where we stand on him. We, we think that there are certainly some hard questions that he needs to answer. Uh, he supports a, a ban on uh, modern sporting rifles or AR-15s. He supports a universal background check, which would necessitate every gun owner in America going onto a national firearm registry, which means you are now on a government watch list simply for exercising your Second Amendment rights. 
Uh, and he supports the red flag laws, which, uh, as the way these are being written, don't have uh, due process protections uh, included in them, which is why NSSF doesn't support them without those due process protections. Um, so Mr. Dettelbach has to answer some of those questions. We're willing to hear what those answers are going to be before we uh, we say whether or not we're going to support or oppose them. But uh, we think that those are serious questions that need to be answered and and, uh, and we'll be interested in hearing what those answers are going to be. That's good to know. Good context. Well, we're running out of time. I will probably do a monologue episode about the marketing bill but gentlemen, briefly direct my listeners again to all your links, social media channels, wherever people can connect with you. Certainly. Uh, you can find me at thereload.com where we do sober, serious reporting on firearms policy and politics. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Stephen Gutowski. Yeah, and folks, you can find NSSF, of course, on, on the internet at uh, nssf.org. Uh, we are, have channels on uh, on all the social media uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, you find out that we're loading up content all the time and, and, and it's a good place to go find on, on our home website, uh, where some of those policy positions are when people are asking where does the fire ministry stand on, on these different issues. You can find not just the blogs, but also a series of fact sheets that will explain some of these very detailed, detailed, intricate and nuanced, uh, issues that we have to work through. Thank you guys again for coming on to update my listeners as to what is trending invaluable insight, of course, from both the media angle and also the industry perspective. So thank you, Mark and Stephen, for coming on again to the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to us on your preferred podcast player. We recommend Apple Podcasts, where over 60% of our listenership hails from. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, which don't really populate, but follow us on social media to make sure you never miss a beat or a guest announcement. You can also find us on CFAC's website under District of Conservation under my profile, Gabriella Hoffman, to catch up on all different past episodes there. If you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever podcasts are played. Share the links, leave your reviews, and tell your friends about the show. Thanks for listening today. Stay tuned for more District of Conservation episodes.